Part Two of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. It was not long before one of the maidens came up to him. At first she seemed quite frightened, but only for a moment. And then she fetched several others, and the mermaid saw that the prince was coming to life, and that he smiled at all those around him, but he never smiled at her. You see, he did not know that she had saved him. She felt so sad that when he was led away into the great building, she dived sorrowfully into the water and made her way home to her father's palace. Always silent and thoughtful, she became more so now than ever. Her sisters often asked her what she had seen on her first visit to the surface, but she never would tell them anything. Many an evening and many a morning she would rise to the place where she had left the prince. She saw the fruit in the garden ripen and then gathered. She saw the snow melt on the mountaintops but she never saw the prince, so she always went home still sadder than before. At home her only consolation was to sit in her little garden with her arms twined round the handsome marble statue which reminded her of the prince. It was all gloomy shade now, as she had ceased to tend her flowers, and the garden had become a neglected wilderness of long stalks and leaves entangled with the branches of the tree. At last she could not bear it any longer, so she told one of her sisters, and from her it soon spread to the others, but to no one else except to one or two other mermaids who only told their dearest friends. One of these knew all about the prince. She had also seen the festivities on the ship, she knew where he came from, and where his kingdom was situated. "'Come, little sister,' said the other princesses, and, throwing their arms round each other's shoulders, they rose from the water in a long line, just in front of the prince's palace. It was built of light yellow glistening stone, with great marble staircases, one of which led into the garden. Magnificent gilded cupolas rose above the roof, and the spaces between the columns which encircled the building were filled with lifelike marble statues. Through the clear glass of the lofty windows you could see gorgeous halls adorned with costly silken hangings, and the pictures on the walls were a sight worth seeing. In the midst of the central hall a large fountain played throwing its jets of spray upwards to a glass dome in the roof, through which the sunbeams lighted up the water and the beautiful plants which grew in the great basin. She knew now where he lived, and often used to go there in the evenings and by night over the water. She swam much nearer the land than any of the others dared. She even ventured right up to the narrow channel under the splendid marble terrace which threw a long shadow over the water. She used to sit there looking at the young prince, who thought he was quite alone in the clear moonlight. She saw him many an evening sailing about in his beautiful boat, with flags waving and music playing. 
She used to peep through the green rushes, and if the wind happened to catch her long silvery veil and anyone saw it, they only thought it was a swan flapping its wings. Many a night she heard the fishermen, who were fishing by torchlight, talking over the good deeds of the young prince, and she was happy to think that she had saved his life when he was drifting about on the waves, half dead, and she could not forget how closely his head had pressed her breast, and how passionately she had kissed him. But he knew nothing of all this, and never saw her even in his dreams. She became fonder and fonder of mankind, and longed more and more to be able to live among them. Their world seemed so infinitely bigger than hers. With their ships they could scour the ocean, they could ascend the mountains high above the clouds, and their wooded, grass-grown lands extended further than her eye could reach. There was so much that she wanted to know, but her sisters could not give an answer to all her questions, so she asked her old grandmother, who knew the upper world well, and rightly called it the country above the sea. "'If men are not drowned,' asked the little mermaid, "'do they live forever? Do they not die as we do down here in the sea?' "'Yes,' said the old lady, "'they have to die, too, and their lifetime is even shorter than ours. We may live here for three hundred years, but when we cease to exist, we become mere foam on the water, and do not have so much as a grave among our dear ones. We have no immortal souls. We have no future life. We are just like the green seaweed, which, once cut down, can never revive again. Men, on the other hand, have a soul which lives forever, lives after the body has become dust. It rises through the clear air, up to the shining stars, just as we rise from the water to see the land of mortals. So they rise up to unknown beautiful regions, which we shall never see. Why do we have no immortal souls? asked the little mermaid sadly. I would give all my three hundred years to be a human being for one day, and afterwards to have a share in the heavenly kingdom. "'You must not be thinking about that,' said the grandmother. "'We are much better off and happier than human beings. "'Then I shall have to die and to float as foam on the water, "'and never hear the music of the waves, "'or see the beautiful flowers, or the red sun? "'Is there nothing I can do to gain an immortal soul?' "'No,' said the grandmother. Only if a human being so loved you that you were more to him than father or mother, if all his thoughts and all his love were so centered in you that he would let the priest join your hands and would vow to be faithful to you here and to all eternity, then your body would become infused with his soul. Thus, and only thus, could you gain a share in the felicity of mankind? He would give you a soul, while yet keeping his own. But that can never happen. That which is the greatest beauty in the sea, your fish's tail, 
is thought hideous upon earth. So little do they understand about it. To be pretty there, you must have two clumsy supports, which they call legs. Then the little mermaid sighed and looked sadly at her fish's tail. Let us be happy, said the grandmother. We will hop and skip during our three hundred years of life. It is surely a long enough time, and after it is over we shall rest all the better in our graves. There is to be a court ball to-night. This was a much more splendid affair than we ever see on earth. The walls and the ceiling of the great ballroom were of thick but transparent glass. Several hundreds of colossal mussel shells, rose-red and grass-green, were ranged in order round the sides, holding blue lights, which illuminated the whole room and shone through the walls, so that the sea outside was quite lit up. You could see countless fish, great and small, swimming towards the glass walls, some with shining scales of crimson hue, while others were golden and silvery. In the middle of the room was a broad stream of running water, and on this the mermaids and mermen danced to their own beautiful singing. No earthly beings have such lovely voices. The little mermaid sang more sweetly than any of them, and they all applauded her. For a moment she felt glad at heart, for she knew that she had the finest voice either in the sea or on land. But she soon began to think again about the upper world. She could not forget the handsome prince, and her sorrow in not possessing, like him, an immortal soul. Therefore she stole out of her father's palace, and, while all within was joy and merriment, she sat sadly in her little garden. Suddenly she heard the sound of a horn through the water, and she thought, now he is out sailing up there, he whom I love more than father or mother, he to whom my thoughts cling, and to whose hands I am ready to commit the happiness of my life. I will dare anything to win him, and to gain an immortal soul. While my sisters are dancing in my father's palace, I will go to the sea-witch, of whom I have always been very much afraid, she will perhaps be able to advise and help me. Thereupon the little mermaid left the garden and went toward the roaring whirlpools at the back of which the witch lived. She had never been that way before. No flowers grew there, no seaweed, only the bare gray sands stretched towards the whirlpools which, like rushing mill-wheels, swirled round, dragging everything that came within reach down to the depths. She had to pass between these boiling eddies to reach the witch's domain, and for a long way the only path led over warm, bubbling mud, which the witch called her peat-bog. Her house stood behind this in the midst of a weird forest. All the trees and bushes were polyps, half animal and half plant. They looked like hundred-headed snakes growing out of the sand. The branches were long, slimy arms, 
with tentacles like wriggling worms, every joint of which, from the root to the outermost tip, was in constant motion. They wound themselves tightly round whatever they could lay hold of and never let it escape. The little mermaid standing outside was quite frightened, her heart beat fast with terror, and she nearly turned back. But then she remembered the prince and the immortal soul of mankind, and took courage. She bound her long, flowing hair tightly round her head, so that the polyps should not seize her by it, folded her hands over her breast, and darted like a fish through the water in between the hideous polyps, which stretched out their sensitive arms and tentacles towards her. She could see that every one of them had something or other which they had grasped with their hundred arms, and which they held as if in iron bands. The bleached bones of men who had perished at sea and sunk below peeped forth from the arms of some, while others clutched rudders and sea-chests, or the skeletons of some land animal, and most horrible of all, a little mermaid whom they had caught and suffocated. Then she came to a large opening in the wood where the ground was all slimy, and where some huge fat water-snakes were gambling about. In the middle of this opening was a house built of the bones of the wrecked. There sat the witch, letting a toad eat out of her mouth, just as mortals let a little canary eat sugar. She called the hideous water-snakes her little chickens, and allowed them to crawl about on her unsightly bosom. "'I know very well what you have come here for,' said the witch. "'It is very foolish of you. All the same, you shall have your way, because it will lead you into misfortune, my fine princess.' You want to get rid of your fish's tail, and instead to have two stumps to walk about like human beings, so that the young prince may fall in love with you, and that you may win him and an immortal soul. <laughs> Saying this, she gave such a loud, hideous laugh that the toad and the snakes fell to the ground and wriggled about there. "'You are just in the nick of time,' said the witch. "'After sunrise to-morrow I should not be able to help you until another year had run its course. I will make you a potion, and before sunrise you must swim ashore with it. Seat yourself on the beach, and drink it. Then your tail will divide and shrivel up to what men call beautiful legs. But it hurts. It is as if a sharp sword were running through you. All who see you will say, you are the most beautiful child of men they have ever seen. You will keep your gliding gait. No dancer will rival you. 
but every step you take will be as if you were treading upon sharp knives, so sharp as to draw blood. If you are willing to suffer all this, I am ready to help you. Yes, said the little princess with a trembling voice, thinking of the prince and of winning an undying soul. But remember, said the witch, when once you have received a human form, you can never be a mermaid again. You will never again be able to dive down through the water to your sisters and to your father's palace. And if you do not succeed in winning the prince's love, so that for your sake he will forget father and mother, cleave to you with his whole heart, let the priest join your hands and make you man and wife, <laughs> you will gain no immortal soul. The first morning after his marriage with another, your heart will break, and you will turn into foam of the sea. I will do it said the little mermaid, as pale as death. "'But you will have to pay me, too,' said the witch. "'And it is no trifle that I demand. <laughs> you have the most beautiful voice of any at the bottom of the sea, and I dare say that you think you will fascinate him with it. But you must give me that voice.' I will have the best you possess in return for my precious potion. I have to mingle my own blood with it, so as to make it as sharp as a two-edged sword. But if you take my voice, said the little mermaid, what have I left? Your beautiful form, said the witch, your gliding gait, and your speaking eyes. With these... You ought surely to be able to bewitch a human heart. Well, have you lost your courage? Put out your little tongue, and I will cut it off in payment for the powerful draft. Let it be done, said the little mermaid, and the witch put on her cauldron to brew the magic potion. "'There is nothing like cleanliness,' said she, as she scoured the pot with a bundle of snakes. Then she punctured her breast, and let the black blood drop into the cauldron, and the steam took the most weird shapes, enough to frighten anyone. Every moment the witch threw new ingredients into the pot, and when it boiled the bubbling was like the sound of crocodiles weeping.' At last the potion was ready, and it looked like the clearest water. "'There it is,' said the witch, and thereupon she cut off the tongue of the little mermaid, who was dumb now, and could neither sing nor speak. "'If the polyps should seize you when you go back through my wood,' said the witch, just drop a single drop of this liquid on them, and their arms and fingers will burst into a thousand pieces. 
But the little mermaid had no need to do this, for at the mere sight of the bright liquid which sparkled in her hand like a shining star, they drew back in terror. So she soon got past the wood, the bog, and the eddying whirlpools. She saw her father's palace. The lights were all out in the great ballroom, and no doubt all the household was asleep. But she did not dare to go in, now that she was dumb and about to leave her home forever. She felt as if her heart would break with grief. She stole into the garden and plucked a flower from each of her sister's plots, wafted with her hand countless kisses towards the palace, and then rose up through the dark blue water. The sun had not risen when she came in sight of the prince's palace and landed at the beautiful marble steps. The moon was shining bright and clear. The little mermaid drank the burning, stinging draught, and it was like a sharp two-edged sword running through her tender frame. She fainted away and lay as if she were dead. When the sun rose on the sea, she woke up and became conscious of a sharp pang. But just in front of her stood the handsome young prince, fixing his coal-black eyes on her. She cast hers down and saw that her fish's tail was gone, and that she had the prettiest little white legs any maiden could desire. But she was quite naked, so she wrapped her long, thick hair around her. The prince asked who she was and how she came there. She looked at him tenderly and with a sad expression in her dark blue eyes, but could not speak. Then he took her by the hand and led her into the palace. Every step she took was, as the witch had warned her beforehand, as if she were treading on sharp knives and spikes. But she bore it gladly. Led by the prince, she moved as lightly as a bubble, and he and every one else marveled at her graceful gliding gait. Clothed in the costliest silks and muslins, she was the greatest beauty in the palace, but she was dumb, and could neither sing nor speak. Beautiful slaves clad in silks and gold came forward and sang to the prince and his royal parents. One of them sang better than all the others, and the prince clapped his hands and smiled at her. That made the little mermaid very sad, for she knew that she used to sing far better herself. She thought, Oh, if he only knew that for the sake of being with him I had given up my voice for ever. Now the slaves began to dance, graceful undulating dances to enchanting music. Thereupon the little mermaid, lifting her beautiful white arms and raising herself on tiptoe, glided on the floor with a grace which none of the other dancers had yet attained. With every motion her grace and beauty became more apparent, and her eyes appealed more deeply to the heart than the songs of the slaves. Every one was delighted with it, especially the prince, who called her his little foundling, and she danced on and on, notwithstanding that every time her foot touched the ground it was like treading on sharp knives. The prince said that she should always be near him, 
and she was allowed to sleep outside his door on a velvet cushion. End of Part Two